I invite you to please rise for the call to worship. The call to worship this morning is from Psalm 77, verses 11 through 14. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, how good and gracious and wonderful you are. Father, we thank you for the beauty of your creation and the amazing love displayed in the death, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, intercession of your son, Jesus Christ. How we long for his return. Father, we pray that in the power of the Holy Spirit, you would enable us to give you all praise, glory, and honor now and forevermore. In Christ's glorious name, amen. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like to invite you to sing with me number 438. You'll find that in the Trinity Psalter hymnal on page 438. I love to tell the story. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
You may be seated. For our time of confession and pardon, I'm going to be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll be leading us in a prayer of confession, then pronouncing the pardon and forgiveness of sins that is only found in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, We regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, how amazing is your steadfast love, your faithfulness, your grace, your mercy, how good you are. Oh, Father, again, we come before you to humble ourselves before you. We are weak, yet you are strong. The only righteousness we have is that of your Son, Jesus Christ, by your sovereign grace and mercy. Father, we want to take this time to confess to you those sins of thought, word, and action over this week. Father, we want to confess to you concerning those times where where we were living more for ourselves than for you or your purpose or your plan. Father, we want to confess to you those times when we were thinking and speaking and living more according to our fallen flesh than according to the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. So, Father, we take this time to confess to you in our hearts and in our minds. Second Corinthians chapter five, verses 17 and 18. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Know this. That if you trust and believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have been given the gifts of repentance and faith, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, know this, that you are forgiven. You have been pardoned. And you are dearly loved by your Heavenly Father. In Christ's glorious name, amen. 
During our time of confession of faith, we continue to work our way through the canons of Dort. Uh, For this Sunday, I invite you to read along with me Article 13, The Incomprehensible Way of Regeneration. The amazing sovereign work of God for his elect in bringing them from death to life. That's what we're looking at in Article 13. So you'll find that in your bulletin. So I invite you to read along with me. Article 13, The Incomprehensible Way of Regeneration. In this life, believers cannot fully understand the way this work occurs. Meanwhile, they rest content with knowing and experiencing that by this grace of God, they do believe with the heart and love their Savior. We being creatures cannot exhaustively know everything of our almighty and sovereign God. But God is so gracious to reveal to us his love, his truth, and his care in such a way that we love him as our heavenly father. What an amazing blessing, our salvation in Christ. As we go into... Uh, My time of leading us in the congregational pastoral prayer. I first want to thank those who prayed for us during our time on the high seas. It was a wonderful blessing in the San Juan. So God kept us safe and what a beautiful, amazing time. And also we're rejoicing this day for our dear sister Caroline, her 96th birthday. So please stay with us after the service as we celebrate that time. And give God glory for, for all the ways he blesses us with her. So, so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you are holy, holy, holy. Oh, Father, we thank you. We thank you that you've enabled us to come, to gather, to worship, to give you praise, glory, and honor, to hear from your word, to hear the gospel proclaimed, to grow up in the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, that is our heart and our desire, to grow up into Christ as the head. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is living and active, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, enables us to grow. Oh, Father, we pray that you'd strengthen us. We pray that you'd strengthen our church. Father, we pray that you would help us as members of one body with Christ as the head. Help us, O oh Lord, to, to love one another, to care for one another, to correct, to rebuke, to exhort one another with patience and love, building each other up and spurring each other on. Father, we pray that you would help us Help us throughout our time of sanctification to live more and more according to the Spirit and less and less according to our old fallen flesh. Father, we pray that you'd grow us in the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Father, we pray that you'd strengthen us and and grow us in the fruit of the Spirit within our marriages, within our families, within all the relationships and opportunities you've given us to be ministers of reconciliation, to reach out to the lost with the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, crucified. Oh, Father, we pray for the lost. We pray for those family and friends those who you brought into our lives who do not know you. Oh, Father, we cry out that according to your purpose and plan that you'd bring them from death to life. Use us, oh Lord, to lift up your gospel. Bring other Christians into their lives to speak your gospel. Oh, Father, we pray that you would do what only you can do. Bring someone from death to life. So we'd lift them up to you, oh Lord. Father, we do pray for Reverend Mahai Korase, the missionary we 
we support in Bucharest, Romania. Father, we pray that you continue to be his strength and his hope. Be with him and his wife and their son. Grow them, O Lord. Father, we thank you for as their church is growing, more and more are coming to salvation throughout that area. Oh, Father, we thank you for your wonderful grace and mercy. Father, we pray that you continue to strengthen us. Father, we pray for the many families who are away on, on vacations or, or away visiting with family or friends. Father, we pray that you would watch over them in their travel, strengthen them, help them, O oh Lord, to have opportunities to grow in your love and lift up your gospel. Oh, Father, we pray that you would strengthen us. Father, we do pray for, for those who continue in a time of illness or a struggle of some kind. Father, we do continue to lift up to you Ruth's mother as she has begun and continues in her cancer treatments with chemotherapy. Oh, Father, we pray that as, as she experiences complications and growing weakness, that her eyes would be fixed on your son, Jesus Christ. That you would be her strength, her comfort, her hope in the midst of this time. Father, we continue to pray for Wendy Lou's mother, for continued healing and strength and comfort for her. Father, we pray that you just continue to, to strengthen her, grow her in the faith, and fix her eyes on your son. Father, we do continue to pray for Dee Dee and Andy and the daughters, that whole family, as she continues on with her treatment. Oh, Father, we pray that, that they would know you and love you and you would be their strength during this time. Father, we pray that you would help us. Help us, O oh Lord, in the midst of such confusion and error all around us within the world and the culture. Father, we pray that you would help us to be people of truth, to shine the light of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you'd help your church to be, to be the pillar and buttress of the truth, to lift up your truth in love and patience, that you would receive all glory. Oh, Father, we thank you. We thank you for, for our dear sister Caroline. We thank you for 96 years. We pray, oh Lord, that you continue to strengthen her, to grow her in the faith, and to use her for your kingdom purposes. Father, we thank you. Father, we, we continue to lift up to you Bruce and Karen and others. We thank you for the memorial service this last week for grace. Father, we pray that you just continue with healing and comfort in the midst of this grief. And Father, we thank you. We thank you for another day to lift up your name and give you all glory. It is because of your amazing grace to us that we say the prayer that our Savior taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, I'd like to invite you to please rise to read our passage of scripture for the day. We're going to be looking at Acts 17 verses 15 through 21. I invite you to read that along with me. You'll find that in your bulletin. Acts 17, starting at verse 15. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons, 
and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, breathed out by you. Oh, Father, we are absolutely dependent on the Holy Spirit to grow us in wisdom and discernment. Your word is all authoritative, all sufficient, inerrant, and infallible. Father, we pray that you would grow us in the truth, for to know your truth is to be set free. In Christ's glorious name, amen. You may be seated. I'd like to invite any children who'd like to for the children's message here in the front row. passage of scripture we're looking at this morning, the Apostle Paul comes into Athens and it says he's provoked in the spirit and he's upset by seeing something. Did anyone catch what, what upset him when we read it? Well, what upset him so much was everywhere he looked, there was an idol. Everywhere. They were all over the city. Now, does anyone know what an idol is? Anyone know what an idol is? What's, what's an idol? Yeah. Well, an idol is anything that someone worships other than God. So an idol could be in the form of a statue, or it could be a person, or it could be money, or it could, it's anything other than God that you look to for help or for your peace or your trust or your comfort. So Paul was upset about that because he knows we can only find real love, real happiness, real truth in God, in Jesus Christ through the power of the Spirit. So what does Paul do when he's upset by this? He teaches, he preaches that Jesus Christ came to die for those who would trust and believe in him so that they could have forgiveness of sins and life. So that's my hope and prayer for each and every one of you as we go through this message, that God would would grow you in that understanding that Christ, Jesus Christ, is my life, my everything. So let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you so love the world that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, Father, we pray that you'd help us to trust and believe in him as our Savior. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. You guys head back to your seats. So we are continuing on in Acts. This is my last message right now in this series of Acts, we've been going through Paul's second missionary journey in preparation for Lord willing going through first and second Thessalonians. That's my next uh, sermon series. 
So we've been looking at Paul's second missionary journey because that's where we find Paul going to Thessalonica. And he will point back to those experiences and what God did throughout First and Second Thessalonians. So this is the end of this little series of Acts in preparation for that. So again, in verse 15, we find Paul. This is where he first went from Thessalonica to Berea. And then in Berea, there was a mob and riot of those who opposed him in Thessalonica. They came to Berea and they had to get Paul out because his life was in danger. And that's where we find them conducting him, sending him as far as Athens to get him as far away from that pursuing mob seeking to put an end to him and his teaching. So that's where we find ourselves in Acts 17. So I'm going to read again, Acts 17, verse 15. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed to go back to Berea. Remember, Silas and Timothy stayed there because there was a church that was formed. There were new believers, and they stayed behind to teach and instruct these new believers, this new church, the things of God from his word. And then we find ourselves in verse 16. Paul is in Athens, surrounded by temples and idols. Athens during this time was the ultimate epitome of Romans 1, Romans chapter 1, where they, the people had turned away from the living of God to worship the creature rather than the creator. So that's where we find ourselves in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, this is a very powerful statement. This, this, this provoking of his spirit speaks of, 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 a, of, of, of a tearing and piercing sadness and grief and, and just, just concern for the people. This, this, is, this is a sense of, of God's holy jealousy. One of God's attributes is he's, he is jealous for his name. Because God alone is the source of what is life and what is joy and what is peace. Jesus Christ alone is the source of forgiveness and salvation and truth. The Holy Spirit is the source of bringing the dead to life and new life to give God praise, glory, and honor. The one true God in three persons, that is where life and truth and peace and joy is found. And nowhere else. Nowhere else. So one aspect of God's love is he is jealous. He is jealous for his name. He is jealous that people worship him and know him and trust in him. Because apart from him is nothing but death and destruction. So this is this provoking we see here. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So what does this provoking, this deep concern and urgency on his part bring about? It's verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews. Now we're used to him first going to the synagogue whenever he came to a new area, but that's only the beginning. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Now that's as broad and indiscriminate way to say every human being, everyone who is alive, everyone who had breath still in their lungs, who came across his path in the marketplace he preached the gospel. He lifted up Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the dead. He told the gospel because he knew it's life or death. Life or death. Whether someone knows Jesus Christ 
as their Lord and Savior and believes and has faith in him. So that's the urgency. That's the compelling, driving urgency we find of the Apostle Paul here in Athens. This is very much what the Apostle Paul describes for us in 2 Corinthians 5. We looked at this in our time of confession, but I want to look more deeply into this. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is this understanding of this, this urgency and the love of God controlling us that when we see someone who is lost, someone who doesn't know and believe in Jesus Christ, we, we are driven. Our passion, our desire is that they know Jesus Christ. Because apart from them, him, they have nothing, absolutely nothing. So it's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 9, it's, this is a beautiful depiction of this provoking and this urgency to proclaim the gospel to everyone that we see in Athens 17. And here Paul is teaching on it in 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5, starting at verse 9. This is what Paul is teaching to the church in Corinth. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. So remember, the Apostle Paul has already made clear that he has died. And the only life he has anymore is Jesus Christ, for Jesus Christ, by Jesus Christ, and for the proclamation of the gospel. So it's verse 10. Here's what Paul understands. And it's vital that we all understand this, who know and believe in Jesus Christ. It's verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. There's that persuasion. There's that reasoning from God's word. There's that lifting up the gospel. We persuade because we know that Christ is returning. And for those who are in Jesus Christ, who trust and believe in him, who are indwelt by his spirit, the Holy Spirit, the return of Christ is our greatest hope, is the most glorious reality that we are longing for. That's our blessed hope, as the Apostle Paul says. But for those who do not trust and believe in Jesus Christ as his return, Revelation depicts it as the most horrific terror and fear with the impending judgment and eternal conscious torment of hell. So that's what Paul is speaking of here in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. By what we are is known to God, and I hope that it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us. And then you go down to verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. See, that's salvation. That's being saved from idolatrous, God-rejecting worship. Salvation from that. Remember, as Paul says, behind every idol is a demonic deception of these idols, these false religions. And what the Apostle Paul is saying in Acts 17, he's living it out and he's teaching in 2 Corinthians 5, is that the love of Christ controls us who are saved. Our pleasure, what pleases us is to please God. Our desire is to see the lost saved and see our brothers and sisters in Christ grow up into the truth of Christ. That's everything. 
Every conversation, every interaction, every aspect of our lives is driven by those two realities. And what ultimately is the freedom that we see depicted in 2 Corinthians 5.15? That people would no longer live for themselves. Live for the things of this earth. Live according to their fallen flesh, the deceptions of the world, the lies and deceptions of the devil. But one could then, who has been set free through true repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, live for Christ. Live for God. Live for his glory, not one's own self-destructive pride. And that's why we see in 2 Corinthians 5.15, where Paul says this, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And that's that glorious reality that someone could be different in so many ways, yet once they are made alive and come to Jesus Christ, they are closer to you, more united to you. They are a part of the same body you are a part of, of Jesus Christ that they are your closest family tie in the family of God, in the church of the living God, and the people of God. Remember the Apostle Paul said, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. It's against the powers and principalities. So what he's saying there is whenever we interact with someone who doesn't believe in Christ, and this could be someone from... Uh, the sweet, dear neighbor down the street that's very kind and bakes cookies to give to the kids and keeps their flower garden nice, very pleasant, nice person, but doesn't believe in Jesus Christ. Apart from salvation in Jesus Christ, that person goes to hell. So we, we could be talking about that person or we could be talking to the most violent, offensive, God-hating person that you can imagine this world? Well, the reality of Scripture is if either of those come to Jesus Christ, you, you are one body with them in the body of Christ. They are your brother and sister in Christ. They're a new creation. They are closer to you than any other tie that one finds on this heaven and earth. Isn't that amazing? So that's why the Apostle Paul could be in Athens and see all the idols and all the godless immorality and all the God-hating reality of the lives of the people there. But, but what tears at his heart? They need to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They need to hear the gospel. They need to believe so that they can give God all praise, glory, and honor. So they can no longer be living for themselves, but live for the one true God. So that's why we find the Apostle Paul in Athens 17. He's, he's going to the synagogue and then every day he's in the marketplace. He's just standing there. Everyone who passes by, he is taking every opportunity to lift up the gospel because the spirit in him is provoked. He knows the outcome of not having repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. So verse 18 is an interesting one. So in the midst of all the people, we find the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers. Now, this is an interesting group in Athens. And the reason why is the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers during this time really had very little interest or, or focus on gods especially the gods of the Greek or Roman pantheon. No, they were more about what one does, how one conducts their life. It was the ultimate works-based reality, whether it was seeking pleasure or, or seeking quiet suffering, whatever it was, it was 
where you turned inward. And what's amazing is for the Epicureans and the Stoics, ultimately you were your own God. How you conducted, how you lived. So, so what's amazing is in Athens, you have people chasing all these false gods and then you have these philosophers who literally are teaching people to be gods for their own selves. So it's still idolatry, just in a different form. And that's verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Now, that's a very interesting word, that babbler. Uh, traditionally in the, in the Greek, that word is used, the oldest meaning was for a bird pecking at seeds. And how the philosophers used it was someone that just would take scraps Collect scraps, like little scraps of paper with little words. You're, you're just collecting things from different things and, and heaping them together to make something. So they thought what Paul was saying was just a bunch of unconnected, babbling nonsense. A little scrap from here and a little scrap from there and a little scrap from there. Is ultimately, as long as their eyes are blind and their hearts are of stone and their ears cannot hear, For the Apostle Paul to be speaking of Jesus and the resurrection would be the most controversial and counter their whole existence. Their whole existence, both the Epicureans and Stoics, was about this earthly life now and how one maximized either pleasure or self-control now. And then the Apostle Paul comes by and says, (laughs) the only way you find life is to repent and believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin. That on the cross, he satisfied the holy wrath of God so that you could have his righteousness and forgiveness and eternal life. You see where that's so contrary? Because it's what it's literally saying is we can do nothing. Apart from Christ, we are absolutely helpless and hopeless. We must believe and have faith. So that's what we see in verse 18. Some of the Epicurean Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Verse 19, and they took him and brought him to Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And then you have this indictment of verse 21. This is not a compliment. This is an indictment. Verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. That's the ultimate expression of someone just wanting some new thing to tickle their ears, to itch their ears. That's the very thing the Apostle Paul warned about in 2 Corinthians 4 concerning the church. Remember 2 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul warned that there would be a time where within the visible church, there would be many who who just won't listen to the truth. And they will just seek after people who will tickle their ears, itch their ears with new things. Things that appealed to their fallen flesh rather than the things of God. Things that help them to have both their earthly life and a presumptive understanding that they're right with God, though they're false. So this is the ultimate danger. What's the opposite of verse 24? The whole book of Deuteronomy. The opposite of verse of The opposite of Acts 17, verse 21 is know the one true God, 
Know his word. Remember his word. Hold on to his word. Teach his word to generation after generation because his word never changes, because he never changes, because he is God. That's where life and truth is found. So you can see why the Apostle Paul is so provoked. What he finds here in Athens is as contrary and oppositional to the truth of God as you can find. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. They're literally just tossed about by whatever new wave or whatever new wind would blow their way, and they have no anchor, no rudder, and they are just tossed here and there and here and there. No stability no ultimate security, no ultimate peace, no salvation, nothing that is life. So you can see why the Apostle Paul is so provoked. It wasn't just the visible idols all through the city. It it was the fickle hearts and minds of the unbelievers. And what was Paul's prayer and passion and desire? that they would know Jesus Christ as the rock, as the foundation, as the anchor of their soul, that they would have hope in him, that they would trust and believe in the gospel so that they could have eternal life. We see where in Acts 17, verse 17, we see that word again that we've been finding throughout his second missionary journey. Acts 17, verse 17, so he reasoned. So he reasoned. We saw that first back in Acts 17, verses 2 and 3. So this is a continuation. And how did he reason? Well, this shows us again how he reasoned. Acts 17, verse 2, the last part of verse 2. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer And to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So that's how the Apostle Paul is reasoning with the Jews, those who knew the Old Testament. And he's showing that every word, all these prophecies, point to Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, the life, as the way of God's beautiful plan of redemption and justification of his elect. But if you continue on Acts 17, you also see how he reasons to those who had never heard a word of Scripture. So I invite you to move your way down in Acts 17 to verse 22. So this is how he reasons to these Stoics and Epicureans and the the Gentile idol worshipers who have gathered to hear his strange teachings. Acts 17, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Again, that is is not a good thing. (laughs) Because their religion is that of idolatry and self-focused living for themselves. Verse 23, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the ascription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. See, the Apostle Paul is making clear that unlike their lifeless idols, 
There is one true God who is all sovereign, who has made everything. And he alone is receive all praise, glory, and honor. We can do nothing by way of giving God something he needs. But what he calls us to do is give God the praise, glory, and honor he deserves. He deserves. If you look down to verse 30 of Acts 17, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. This is this glorious reality that the proclamation of the gospel is a command. There is a command in the proclamation of the gospel. Repent, believe, trust in Jesus Christ crucified as your Lord and your Savior. Verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And for this, he has given assurance to all by the raising him from the dead. Verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked and others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damarius, and others with them. So isn't this amazing? What the Apostle Paul is showing here and displaying for us is the reality of Romans 1.16. Romans 1.16, Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We have the Apostle Paul. He's reasoning in the synagogue in Athens. He's going to the marketplace. He goes to Areopagus. He's with these people that all they want to do is hear new things. They, 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 their eyes are blind. Their ears are deaf. Their hearts are hard. You have many of them mocking him. Yet Paul preaches the gospel. And what does God do according to his sovereign plan and purpose? Those whom he has predestined, whom he has elected in his time according to his plan, they go from death to life. They believe. They believe. What they just minutes ago would have considered nonsense. They now are placing their full hope and trust and life in. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power of God through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified. That's why there's nothing that replaces the gospel. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the lifting up of the gospel, the proclamation of God's word is living and active. This is what we are about. The reason why the Apostle Paul in Romans 1.16 is not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation, everyone believes, is again because Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Remember, no one's with, with an excuse Romans 1.25, ultimately, what has every non-believer in Jesus Christ done? Romans 25, because they have exchanged the truth about God for a lie 
and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So when we see the Apostle Paul, and this is going to be so vital as Lord willing, we, we walk through First and Second Thessalonians. This is going to be so vital as we walk through those is to understand this provoking of Paul's spirit and this urgency and this passion and desire and drive. This Apostle Paul understands that apart from true repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, a person is under condemnation. They are under wrath. And they are bound for hell. Apart from justification through faith alone in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, they have nothing. And they are bound for eternal destruction. It's to know that and understand that is is what drives us to lift up the love of God, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, to never quit, to never give up, to pray, to plead, to pray, to plead. If I were to write a book on evangelism, it'd it'd be two words. And however many pages you want it to be, Whatever the publishing marketer said would be a good amount of pages, sure. But it would only be two words. They just keep repeating. Pray, plead, pray, plead, pray, plead, pray, plead. Keep reading that page. Flip the page. Pray, plead, pray, plead. I'd make sure on the first page it would say what you pray. You pray, oh Lord, give them eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe, minds to understand. That apart from you, they have nothing. So you pray that. And what do you plead with them? Repent. Believe. Know Jesus Christ as your Savior. That he died on the cross for your sins. Believe the gospel. Pray. Plead. Pray. Plead. When would you stop that? When either you or they are dead. Until then, pray, plead, pray, plead. As long as the Lord gives you breath, he gives them breath. That's what it means to not be ashamed of the gospel as the power of God for all those who believe. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how wonderful you are. How gracious and good you are. Oh, Father, we pray that you would would so provoke our spirits. That you'd give us such an urgency, a desire, a passion to see the lost saved. To see the lost go from living for themselves to living for you. And giving you all praise, glory, and honor. Father, we pray that that would be our passion, our desire, and the focus of our lives. Help us, O Lord, to be ministers of reconciliation. For the love of Christ controls us. In Christ's glorious name, amen. Well, I invite you to rise and sing with me number 520. What a friend we have in Jesus.
receive the benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I invite you to close with me with the Gloria Patria. Father and